0: There is the tired old story of the Unitarians who upon death are somewhat surprised to find themselves in an afterlife. (laughs) They are set down upon a path that it seems they are meant to travel. Walking along, they come to a fork in the road and a roadside that pointing left reads heaven and pointing right reads heaven an eternal discussion series on expectations of paradise throughout the ages, or something like that. (laughs) And the Unitarians, without missing a beat, turn right. Now that story is somewhat troubling. (laughs) It bolsters a particular stuffy intellectual image ascribed much more often to our Unitarian side than our Universalist side. And, may, and it makes it sound like we would rather think and ponder and hear our own opinions than actually experience life. In that sense, it is a cautionary tale. And I believe, thankfully, becoming far less typical of who we are than it may once have been. And if I am to be honest with myself, there is something in the story that speaks directly To me. More specifically, if the sign pointing to the right had read, Heavenly Library, a collection of every single one of the books ever written regarding paradise and heaven and the afterlife, including, because this is the afterlife, all of the lost books that humans never found on earth and that you thought you would never be able to read. If that's what the sign said, if I didn't immediately follow the road to the right, which my wife Hanji says I would have, (laughs) I would at least hesitate. You see, I love to read. Books are my preferred entry into all sorts of things. Hanji, also an avid reader, will tell you how easily suggestible I am. If we are taking a trip to Florida, I grab hold of a novel that takes place there or a writer who is from there or something somehow, some way related. If a writer dies who I realize I have somehow overlooked for too long, I am putting their books on hold at the library. When I first visited the seminary that I attended, United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, and walked into their library full of obscure philosophical and theological texts sitting right there on the shelves, I thought maybe I had gone to heaven. (laughs) I can lose myself in bookstores, libraries, in the pages of this book or that book, or in sorting through this stack or that stack to find my next read. I can lose myself, and I think in many cases I have found myself there, too. Or learn many things about myself and my relationship to this thing we call existence. And, while I would certainly say that books have raised my consciousness and increased my awareness, I wonder if there are also times in which I allow them to interfere with it. I wonder if there are times I choose a book reading about something over experiencing what is there for me to experience right before me. While I use books to explore myself, do I also sometimes use them to hide from myself, to defer my own introspection by engaging with the writer's introspection? My esteemed colleague Tom Owen Toll, whom you heard from in the reading, recounts a scene from the movie Annie Hall, where the protagonist says, I was thrown out of New York University for cheating on a metaphysics exam. The professor caught me looking deeply into the soul of the student seated next to me. (laughs) (laughs) Owen Toll confesses that he too is... Quote, sorely tempted to stare into everyone's soul but my own. Annie Dillard's, Lauren Isley's, Alice Walker's, Wendell Berry's, Denise Levertov's, the list goes on. And of the many books by these writers and so many more we could all name, they can aid and support my own inward journey. And I need to be careful not to let them preclude my inward journey. Not to let my reading become part of what Owen Toll calls, quote, the prejudice that an energetic, bustling mind is the hallmark of a vital human being. Not to allow books to become part of the clutter that keeps me from being present to myself. Not to allow others' voices to become part of the noise that prevents me from finding myself in the silence. For the first time since I've been the minister here and for many years before, I somehow missed celebrating Evolution Sunday last weekend. It is traditionally celebrated at the worship service that falls closest to the birthday of Charles Darwin and celebrates how science and religion, rather than battling one another, can inform and challenge one another. There are a few things that inspire within me the kind of awe and wonder and humility and gratitude that happens when I engage with the realities of how we human beings came to be here. The jaw-dropping timeline of life of which humans make up a nearly infinitesimal part and the amazing intricacies of natural selection even in my own meager and fragmentary understanding of it. There is an educational aspect to it, of course, that is extremely interesting and exciting and is fueled for me by finding books, new and old, which fascinate me with wondrous discoveries and insights. And there is also a meditative side to it, a spiritual side, if you will, one that calls me to metaphorically drop to my knees in wonder, and that piece is just as worthy of attention. Sometimes I need to just be with that timeline and measure it against my own breath and the beats of my heart. Sometimes I need to gaze with my mind's eye upon those footprints of our ancestors from 3.4 million years ago preserved in volcanic ash at Litoli as my own feet carry me over the streets of this town So intent upon my next appointment, convinced of the absolute importance of my next task. Sometimes I need to pause before I put my earbuds in and listen to the breeze and wonder at the breaths it has held from a nearly inconceivable number of life forms and across an unimaginable amount of time and feel what it means to be alive. And when those things happen, I need to rest for a while in that appreciative, awestruck state. All too often, noticing myself in this place, rather than resting there for a bit, I experience what I call a rush to judgment. Look, this is wonderful, I say to myself, but if I was just a little more disciplined about engaging a spiritual practice, I could actually cultivate this kind of awareness and maybe not just catch it in fleeting moments when I am in the midst of everything else. You see what happens? I actually move myself out of the awareness so I can beat myself up for not doing anything to make sure that I can experience this kind of awareness. And then I go all New Year's resolution kind of crazy and start tying myself in illogical knots with my good intentions, thinking as soon as I have some time, I'm going to make more time to devote to some kind of spiritual practice. As soon as I have some time, I'm going to take more time for quiet, silence, stillness. (laughs) You see how silly that is. As soon as I have time, I will make time. As soon as I have time, I will take time. But the whole reason one makes and takes time is because it is not readily apparent that the time is there to be had. The whole idea of making time comes from prioritizing something that hasn't found its way onto my calendar, but that I believe needs to be there. But the second part of this is that in the midst of this blessed glimpse of an awareness that I wish to cultivate, I take myself away from the awareness so that I can wish that I had more experiences of this awareness, blame myself for not doing anything to make room for such experiences, and vow in predictably doomed ways to make more opportunities for experiencing this type of awareness. Welcome to the real world of religious leaders. (laughs) Don't look behind the curtain, folks. (laughs) But seriously, what I'm getting to is actually good news. What I am saying is that I believe these moments of awareness happen, if not frequently, naturally. They happen naturally. And that the way to cultivate this awareness is not to nag myself about my lack of spiritual practice, but to practice recognizing those moments, to rest in them for a few beats longer than I think I have time for, to appreciate them rather than to quickly cast them aside as I vow to appreciate them in the future when I have made the proper and long overdue arrangements to make them happen as if I could make them happen. To simply pause and notice and appreciate and do nothing. Though personal worth is often riveted on activity in this culture. To simply pause and for just a few moments let go of my thoughts and opinions and plans and purposes. Though I may have succumbed to the prejudice that an energetic, bustling mind is the hallmark of a vital human being. To simply pause and notice and appreciate that I am alive, that I am at once separate from and connected to all of life. And that I have caught a glimpse of the awesome circumstance I find myself in of being such a tiny, tiny, tiny part of and yet a full participant in existence. The way to increase the likelihood of experiencing such moments of awareness is to welcome such moments of awareness when they happen. And one might think, why wouldn't I welcome them? The truth is that awareness is not always pleasant, it is not always uplifting. My awareness of the wonder of being alive brings with it a recognition that this life is fragile and fleeting. My awareness of the beauty of interdependence carries also the awareness of how our connection to one another can be dishonored and abused and that we are connected nevertheless, caught in a network of mutuality as Martin Luther King Jr. so powerfully and unsentimentally described it tied in a single garment of destiny. And if I have opened myself to the experience of profound joy, I have also opened myself to deep streams of inevitable and undeniable sadness. What happened in Florida this past week put me in touch with this. Yes, I have yelled back at the talking political heads on TV as they offer thoughts and prayers while conveniently sidestepping, answering any questions about the accessibility of outrageously deadly weapons. Yes, I have cheered on the students speaking out in courageous ways about the action they demand. Yes, I have despaired that those who are elected to represent the people will ever find the strength to free themselves from the icy grip of the NRA and the corrupting temptation of lobbyist dollars. I have fumed and I have fretted and I have felt an aching anger festering within me toward a society that seems to be willing to sacrifice the safety of our children upon the altar of my right to bear arms through a questionable interpretation at best of a document from a time when people could not even have conceived of the weapons that can now be found in homes across this country. And while I may think that all of that may be, if not justified, at least understandable, I also had to stop and wonder if some of my blustering was to avoid feeling the deep sadness that flowed beneath it all. I've tried to set aside some time to just be with that, as uncomfortable and painful as it sometimes feels. I have, not surprisingly, found a book. (laughs) Just started it that may help provide a way for me to open to that sadness that comes with connection. It's written by Sue Klebold, the mother of Dylan Klebold, one of the two students who carried out the killings at Columbine. I've tried to grant my soul more time as long as it takes to catch up with my rambling body, to catch up with my bustling mind, to catch up with my ever eager tongue, which is always ready to say so much more than I know. I have attempted to open myself, if only for fleeting moments, to the awareness, however unwelcome at first, of the deep sadness running through all of this. It has not lessened my frustration with those potential policy makers who, in my estimation, stubbornly refuse to address the real issues. It has not lessened my support of and feelings of solidarity with those students. It has not dampened my desire and my commitment to call for action. But it has, at times, helped to ground all that in the realization that I am carrying this deep sadness about how we fail One another, and more directly, how I can fail you. A realization of how far my compassion at my best can extend even to those whom I so dislike. How wondrous and dangerous our connection to one another can be. It has at times grounded me in the realization that this is not simply an issue but an opportunity for us all to think about how we wish to express our reverence for life and our connection to all that is. Everybody needs a rock. Everybody needs that which connects us to what is really going on around us and what is really going on within us. Everybody needs something that reminds them of those fragments of holiness, glimpses of eternity, brief moments of insight that connect us in joy and sadness, in celebration and suffering to all that is. Everybody needs something that reminds us to give our souls, however you may interpret that word, that allows our souls to catch up with our rambling bodies, our bustling minds, our actions,